0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to this podcast. We would love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. We encourage you to send us your story by visiting our new website at wearefreedomlife.com. Welcome to freedom. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. Any Christmas fans in the house, right? Some of you are like... Okay, we got the excited section here, and some of you are like, ah, yeah, why did you just remind me? That puts a lot of pressure on me, like I got a lot of stress, right? Uh, so uh, the Christmas tradition in my family is that we always get a real... Christmas tree. How many real Christmas tree people we got out there? Okay, okay. How many of you people, you're the fake kind of Christmas tree people. You're like the pull it out of the garage, dust it off, and set it up, and walk away from it. Like, done! Christmas tree is done, right? There's some dissent here, I see. Okay, you guys need to be a two Christmas tree family. You got a real one and an art family. Receive it, brother. Receive it. I'm just saying. So we became a real Christmas tree family many years ago, and um, so for, for several of those years, the tradition was that when I would go away after Thanksgiving for my annual hunting trip with my dad, because I grew up hunting with my dad, I would, we would we, grow up like over the Pittsburgh, a couple miles north of Pittsburgh in a little town called Titusville, where I was born, we would go hunt there. And so the tradition became that on my way home, somewhere along Route 80 on the drive home across the top of the state, I would stop and I would pick out a beautiful Christmas tree for the family. And so this had become the tradition. And so this one season after uh, hunting season, I'm coming home and, and I stop and I get a tree. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it, we had like a vaulted ceiling at that point in the house we were in at that point. And so it was this tall Christmas tree, Fraser fir, just perfect, perfect, tall and skinny, just like my wife wanted the Christmas tree to be right. Like most of us want to be anyways in life. But, and uh, so I got this tree and I got one mission. I got one mission. Everyone's say one mission. I got one mission is to get the tree home, get it home. And so I'm put, I put it on the top of my truck and I tie it down and away we go. And I say we, because it's me and my golden retriever Samson, who's riding shotgun with me. Right. And we, and here we go. And it's like a five or six hour drive home where I was living at that point. And we're going home. We get about like halfway there and I'm tired. And so I pull off some random exit on on i-80 and i find myself in a drive-thru at a mcdonald's drive through. i don't know how it happened wasn't a good moment but i did it and um went through the drive got some getting some caffeine getting some whatever and as i'm sitting at the drive-thru all of a sudden i don't know if you've ever had an experience like this all of a sudden i become acutely aware of how gross my car has become some of you are like that's every day in my life <laughs> Uh, I'm like, it's nasty, it's dirty, it stinks, it smells like a dog, because my dog's pretty much been living in the car for the last week, and he's a golden retriever. There's hair everywhere on me, on the dog, on every part of the car. It smells. There's mud on the outside of the car because of the hunting. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. It's nasty. And I'm just thinking, this, I can't even, this is repulsive. I can't handle this. And as I'm driving now out of the drive through I see a sign for a car wash. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a brilliant idea. I should get a car wash. I mean, it won't fix the problem on the inside, but at least the car will look good on the outside. I completely forgot there was a, yeah, you didn't forget, but I did. And I, I, I go rolling through the, I go, I get in line at the car wash, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, it's one of those ones where you pull in and it, it it's not like, it doesn't have the brushes and stuff that rub up against the car, but it just sprays everything, but it does it automatically. So you're not actually getting out of the car. You're just sitting there and I roll up and swipe my credit card and I'm like, soap, extra soap, wax, extra wax, extra hot. Biggie size clear. I'm just. I pick it all. I I press. I'm like Elf in the elevator, and I'm like I'm 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 Buddy the Elf, and I just I just pick everything. I want it all. Give it to me because this is disgusting. I got to get out, and I roll right through that car wash, Christmas tree, and all. I didn't know. I didn't know for two hours. I was almost home. I'm driving down Interstate 80, and I'm just rolling. I am so proud of myself. I'm thinking my wife is going to be so happy with her husband right now. I'm going to come home with a clean car. She's going to be so happy. I'm driving along, driving along. All of a sudden, I'm like. I look, I'm gonna look, I look at the dog. I look at Samson. I'm like, we, we, just, we just took the Christmas tree through a car wash. <laughs> Who takes a Christmas tree? Through a car wash. What? I mean, what has I have lost sight of the mission? Like, like, how do you just forget that you got an eight foot Fraser fur Christmas tree on top of your car and roll through a car wash? I look at the dog. I'm like, you didn't even tell me. You didn't remind me. You didn't whimper. You didn't bark. You did nothing. You know what? What? You're useless as a shotgun dude. Like, what's your deal? I'm thinking, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, there's, no, there's not even a tree left up there. If, it's, if there's anything left, it's like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree at this point. There's just, I probably killed a family of chipmunks living in the tree. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, my mind's going, and so, so we, get, we get home, and I, I eagerly, like, before my family comes running out of the house, or pulling the driveway, and I jump out, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, it's still there. And it actually looked okay. I mean it was a little wet, but it looked okay. And I'm thinking and I look at the dog and I look at the tree and I look at the dog and I'm like, don't tell anyone. And we do a Paul pound. And it's like, we got a gentleman's agreement now. And I'm like, you're not, we're not saying a thing. Right. And so we go rolling into the garage and I'm loading, I'm unloading the tree. And my wife comes running out through the garage door. She's like, you got the tree. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, bring it on in. We're all ready. We got furniture moved around. And I'm like, Oh, I was going to, I'll just mess with it tomorrow. Cause I'm thinking it needs to dry out, but you know, I'm not going to tell her that. And she's like, no, just bring it in, bring it in right now. I'm like, okay. And here we go. I come rolling in. We set the tree up and I, you know, we, we, it starts to unspread and everything. And she's like, oh my goodness, it's so wet. She's like, did did it, did it like rain on the way home? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we hit a little water, you know, just (laughs) kind of like ran into some stuff, you know, she's like, oh, it didn't rain here. I'm like, oh really? Nope. Yeah. We just, you know, hit, hit some water on the way home. I am not, Telling her that I have failed at the primary mission of bringing the Christmas. I got one job to do as the husband for Christmas, and that's bring home a tree. And so, a couple days go by, and you got to understand. So you got to understand for my wife, right? Some of you women know exactly what this is, like. My wife, when she sets up a Christmas tree, she goes all kinds of chip and jojo on that thing. Like it is, like, it is like a home remodeling show. I mean, she's ladders out, and she might as well be bringing like a lifting, and just like just she's just I and mean, she makes a masterpiece. So this is her pride and joy. This is her pride and joy. And so she has worked on this tree now for several days. And I I come walking in, um, to the, to the room and she's standing by the Christmas tree warning. And she's, she's, she has one of the branches with the needles and she's looking at it like this. And I'm like, Oh dear Jesus, help me right now. And I'm like, Hey, Hey, very nervously. Hey, Hey baby, what's you doing? She's like, I don't know. She's like, something, something's different about the tree. I'm like, what, 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 what do you mean? Something? She's like, I don't know. I just can't tell. She's like, did you get the same tree as last year? I'm like, oh mm-hmm, yeah, Fraser fir. what you want. She's like, I don't know. Something's different. I'm like, well, what, what do you mean something's different? She's like, I don't know. She's like, it's like the needles are shiny. I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking that was, that was the clear coat button that I pressed. Like, that's what that, that's, that's what that was right there. <laughs> and, and she's, I'm like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, that's weird. And she's just like, I oh, don't, it's just diff- looks different. It looks different. And, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, it's, I glazed it. Like I glazed this tree has a wax glaze on it. Right. And I, I just kind of like the, like change the subject and walked out of the room. And then a day later I come back and she's standing by the tree again. And I'm, and I'm like, what's wrong, baby? She's like, I'm worried about the the Christmas tree. I'm like, oh, what's wrong? She's like, I don't know. It's just different. I think it's dying. I feel like it's dying already. We've only had it for a couple of days and I feel like it's dying already. She's like, have you been giving this tree enough water? I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, baby, that tree got so much water, like, you don't even want to, you don't want to know how much water, <laughs> and, and i but I am not going to tell her, I'm telling you, we, like, barely made it over the Christmas Day finish line with the tree, and then it just, like, shriveled up and died, and she finally, like, realized something happened, she looked at me, she's like, what'd you do to my tree, <laughs> and, and I'm like, I, uh, I, um, just, um, I, uh, drove it through a car wash, do, do you do you have any understanding how embarrassing it is to say those words to your spouse? I drove the Christmas tree through a car wash. <laughs> I'm the only human that I think that has ever done this, right? I to this day I wish someone had been sitting behind me in line at the car wash and videotaped the whole thing because it would be viral on YouTube. I would be I would be I I wouldn't need your offering because I'd be a YouTube star right now because I'd be the guy idiot who went through a drive car wash with his with his christmas tree right my way she was so mad she was so mad but you know like in in, this is what happens like you i lost my focus for just one minute that's all it takes you you lose your focus you for one minute you got one job everyone say one job you got one mission everyone say one mission and you you lose your focus you get distracted looking at something else or thinking about something else or something else seems more exciting or something is enticing you away from the job at hand or away from the mission and all of a sudden you've just killed a family of chipmunks and taken a christmas tree through a car wash and you have a funny story that you can tell and it's very very embarrassing and every time i tell the story my wife gives me that look you you know that look all you husbands know that look that, that look that basically says to you, my husband is an idiot look, that one. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> right? One job, one mission. I want, I want to take you to a passage of scripture a, of a famous Israelite prophet who had one job, one mission. Powerful man of God. One job, one mission. Everyone say one job. But he lost his focus. Just, just lost his focus. And I, I don't understand all the reasons why. It, when, when, when I give you the context of the story and then we begin to read, we're going to be in First Kings chapter 19, so you can go ahead and get yourself a head start there if you want to turn there. I, I, don't, know, I don't know all the reasons why Elijah lost his focus the way that he did, but Elijah had a job. He, he was, give me some, I'll give you some context here real quick before we start reading the text. Elijah is the premier prophet of Israel at this, this point in history, right? Israel, the country, the nation, the people of God, God's chosen people, God would raise up men. To be prophets, men and women. He raised up Elijah to be probably one of the most famous or most notable prophets. And in his day, Elijah is the the man, spiritually speaking. He is like the rock star prophet. He's like the Billy Graham of his generation. Everyone listens to what Elijah has to say. I'll give you some context here just so you understand what an an amazing man Elijah was, right? There was one point in history where King Ahab, who was the king at the time, uh, but, but, but the Bible says that Ahab did evil in God's eyes. Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. She was just as evil, if not more evil, than Ahab was. They had introduced false gods into the worship system of the Israelite nation. Elijah wasn't having it. And so Elijah confronted the king and said to the king, Until you get things right, I'm calling for a drought. And it didn't rain for three days. Now, you think about that. Can you relate to that? Have you ever decided you didn't want it to rain and it just didn't rain for three? I'm sorry, not three days, three years. Let me get my math right here. Three years. Most of us can't even figure out how to turn the spigot off without it dripping in our house. Right? Elijah just says, I'm going to shut down the water faucet of heaven. And it happens. For three years, it brings famine to the land. Uh, they're losing all of their food. Their cattle and their horses are dying. In fact, it gets so desperate of a situation that, that uh, Ahab says, go find that prophet Elijah. This, I'm just kind of paraphrasing what's happening here in chapter 17 and 18 before we start reading in chapter 19. Uh, Ahab says, go get that prophet Elijah and find him. Well, here's what Elijah is doing. While the entire country is in famine, is living in abject poverty because of the curse that Elijah called on because they were serving false gods. Elijah is living by a little tiny brook of water that somehow someway is still running and Elijah is getting fed food that's being brought to him by ravens. Now you think about that. Room service from heaven every day of your life. You know he was taking advantage of that, right, Pastor Tony? He was ordering Starbucks. He was like, can I get some biscotti tomorrow? Can you bring me my drink? Can I go with the 2% homogenized tomorrow? Like, you know, it just, like, I mean, Elijah's got it going on. And then eventually, God gives Elijah the the, the call and he says, hey, let's end this thing. And so Elijah calls for a showdown. And so when you get to the end of chapter 18, again, just paraphrasing, giving you context, right? When you get to the end of chapter 18, here's what you find. Elijah basically said, hey, your God versus my God. Because Ahab and Jezebel had brought all these false gods in the gods of Baal. And they had all these false prophets, about 450 prophets of Baal. And then about another 300 or so prophets of, of another false god. And Elijah basically said, hey... Uh, your God versus, versus my God. He calls for a showdown, right? Basically, this is the way that it goes. Elijah basically says, meet me on the top of Mount Carmel, right? Which is interesting because if you understand or you do any research in uh, Bible history or geography, here's what, you, here's what you'll discover. Mount Carmel was thought to be the dwelling place of the false god Baal, of course, the people that served Baal didn't consider him a false god. They just said Mount Carmel was where he lived at. So Elijah basically is saying to the false prophets of Baal, Hey, you can have home court advantage. We'll have this showdown. Here's what's going to happen. You, you're going you're to have a bull that you're going to sacrifice. I'm going to have a bull that I'm going to sacrifice. And whichever god can flick his bick the fastest and send fire from heaven, that, that god is the god who wins. In fact, you, and we don 't No coin toss needed you just you can go ahead and go first, and so they all show up and there 's hundreds and hundreds of false prophets and, and they 're praying and they're, and they 're singing and they 're crying out and they 're trying to get their false God to send fire from heaven. Nothing's happening. Elijah starts making fun of them, and then eventually it 's Elijah's turn and he steps up and he, he, he sacrifices his oxen and then they pour water on it and then they pour more water on it and more again i 'm just going through this really fast so we 're going to start reading from the text in just a minute. And then eventually Elijah says one thing, and whoosh, right? I mean, this is the barbecue of all barbecues. This is, this is Elijah saying, we're going to settle this like men, over the grill. Whichever one of you can barbecue the best, that's, you know. And, Eli- and Elijah basically proves that his God is the real God. Interestingly enough, and we talked about this a little bit last night, I even mentioned a little bit this morning, Elijah's name. Elijah's name means, when you translate it, my God is Yahweh. So so Elijah is not just the prophet of Israel, but even his name brings up this sense of pride that I talked about this morning where David said, The Lord, like Yahweh is my shepherd. We talked about that. Elijah's name basically is this declaration of, My God is Yahweh. Yahweh. Do you know who Yahweh is? The one who was and is and is to come? Yahweh. The one who's utterly independent of all things? The one, the one who has established this earth, the one in whom all other things are dependent upon, that's my name. I, I mean, Elijah's got it going on. He's got the name, he's got the power, he's got the reputation, and when it's all said and done, he, he slaughters the false prophets, he says to his servant, it's going to rain, and it rains, and then at the end of chapter 18, now we can start picking up and, 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 and reading together, right? At the end of chapter 18, when you get to the end of verse 44, it says this. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. So so again, put it on context real quick. Elijah said, no rain. It didn't rain for three years. Elijah said, meet me on top of Mount Carmel. Everyone met him there. Elijah said, fire's going to fall from heaven. It happened. Elijah kills the prophet of Baal. Now he says it's going to rain. It's getting ready to rain. He says to the king, you better get in your chariot and you better get out of here because the rain's coming. Now, this is what happens next. Take this out. He says, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The winds rose. A heavy rain. That's what Elijah said was going to happen. A heavy rain came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Ahab is in a chariot with horses, and Elijah now is running faster than the horses. This, he's like Forrest Gump. I mean, you just can't, you can't, I mean, just think of, Elijah has it all going on. Now, now Ahab, he, verse, verse one of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel, this is Ahab's wife, sent a messenger to Elijah. This is what she said. May the gods deal with me, lowercase gods, lowercase g. May the gods deal with me be it ever so severely, if by this Time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Pause here for a second. I don't know about you. But there is nothing in this story that I can relate to yet. Because I've i never said it's going to be no rain for three years and it happened. I've never said it is going to rain. It's going to happen. I, I've never called down fire from heaven. I've never killed 850 false prophets. Thank God. I want that on my conscience, right? Like I, I've never done it. I've never been fed from ravens. Right. I've never you know, what I'm saying like 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 if, if you and I, when we read this story, just in our human way of thinking, you can look at it and be like, well, cool for Elijah. But that's not my life. Like I'm just trying to get Christmas trees home without forgetting and not going through a car wash like like Elijah's mission seems much more important than my mission. I can't relate until we get to verse number three, because it says this. It says Elijah was, what's that word? Afraid. Everyone say say it. Elijah was af- afraid. Oh, he was. Oh, oh, fear. Oh, oh, okay. And he ran for his life. Now this now this is this is where I can relate to Elijah. But I don't. This is surprising to me because based on everything that I know about Elijah, what his name means, and what his past is, and what his track record is, and how much authority he has, especially in the spiritual realm. I wouldn't think that verse 3 was going to say, now Elijah was afraid. I would have thought that verse 3 would have sounded something more like this. Elijah received the message from Jezebel, and Elijah said, bring it on. Go ahead. Go ahead with yourself. Go, you think you're going to take me out? In fact, Ahab, I got a little message for your wife. I'm about to drop a diss track on your wife right now. And, to, you know, go ahead. You think you got, no, go right ahead. You got nothing on me. That's what I would have thought that Elijah would have said. But that's not what happened. All of a sudden, this incredible man of God has become very, very, very human and very relatable. And I don't know exactly why in verse three, it says that he was afraid. We just know that it says he was afraid. Maybe he was exhausted. I mean, he just got done killing 800 people. <laughs> it's got to be, got to be hard work, right? I mean, maybe he's just exhausted. Three years of famine. Maybe it took a toll on him. You know, always remember to care for and pray for your leaders in your church. You have no idea the toll and the burden that they carried, much like Elijah was carrying it. Sometimes you, you look at, at your pastor, you look at, your pastor's wife, you look at the other pastors on staff here, and you just think, oh, they got it all going on. I can't relate to that. I can't relate to what's going on. You look at them in the same way that we can look at Elijah earlier on in the text, and you don't realize that there's a verse 3 in their life. There's a verse 3 in their life that says, and, 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 and Tony was afraid. See, see, I don't, I don't understand. It's just conjecture on my part to try to interpret it. All I know is I can finally relate. Elijah was afraid. Maybe it was caused by fear. Maybe it was caused by discouragement. Maybe, maybe Elijah thought that when the fire from heaven fell and burned up the sacrifice, it was going to spark the revival within the nation of Israel that he had been probably been praying for for years, and it seemed as if it did nothing at all. It just all of a sudden. It just, maybe Elijah thought, when I unleash the rains upon heaven, then finally this country will come back to repentance. And all he got in response was death threats from the king's wife. So, so you got you to look deep into the context here because what happens is Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Or let me just translate it real quick. And he ran from his life, from his life mission, from his job, from his calling, from what he was called to do in this country, what he was called to do in his nation. Let's just read on in the story because I think there's some instruction here about the mission of God on Elijah's life that we're going to unpack here. Let me just read. Let's go on. Read along with me. He was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. Bad, bad idea. Bad idea. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert. Be real careful when you are in a weakened season of your life. Be real careful about isolating yourself from your friends and from people that are there to support you. Just, Just food for thought there. He himself, on a day's journey to the desert, he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I mean, think about where we've come from. In just a couple verses, we've gone from mountaintop experience all the way to Elijah basically saying, I am done. He said he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Have you ever prayed that prayer? <laughs> I think we all have. I've had enough. I've just had enough. I'm done. I'm just done. I am so done with this job. I am so done with this marriage. I am so done. I am so done with that coworker. I am so done with my boss. I am so done with those kids. <laughs> right? Don't laugh too loud, parents. Some of your kids are here in the room. Right? I am just done. I'm done. He says, I'm done. Take my life. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree, tree and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel of the Lord touched him and said, get up and eat. That's the first instruction. You can write it down if you take a note. We'll come back to it in just a minute. Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. I mean, here he's got room service from heaven again, right? Now he's getting like a hot loaf of bread from heaven it's i mean it's got to be incredible it's probably gluten-free too like it's it's just incredible like you know there's bread and then then he gets a jar of water i mean this is like the this is like the original fiji water right here that's being delivered to him right and so he wakes up and there's hot coals and there's a jar of water and he ate and he drank and then he lay down again which by the way is one of my life verses eat and drink and then lay down again like i believe in that with all my heart right Verse seven, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Again, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So I don't know what was in the cliff bar that the angel gave him, but that meal lasted for 40 days. And he got to the mountain of God and there into the cave he spent the night. But the first instruction we just read a minute ago in verse number six says this, all at once, the end of verse five, all at once the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Look at your neighbor real quick and say, you got to eat more. You got to eat more. So, some of you husbands are like, I am so glad I came to church tonight because my wife and I have been fighting about this. I've been trying to tell her that my calorie count's been way too low and you can't lose weight that way. So I need to consume more. Some of you're like, can we just go now? Cause I got to get, I got to get out and I got to get something to eat. We got to get to Applebee's before it closes. Right. But, but see, Elijah had a mission in his life. It would be helpful at this point for, for you and I to unpack or understand what Elijah's mission was. Because Elijah's mission ultimately could all be condensed into one statement. Elijah, the one whose name meant, my God is Yahweh. His mission was to bring the presence of God to the people of Israel. Everything that Elijah did up until this point in the text, all through the previous chapters, all through chapter 18, it was all about the people of Israel having an encounter with the presence of God. It was about calling the people of Israel back to the presence of God. It was about calling the people of Israel back to the worship of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was about calling the people of Israel away from their false gods, away from the things that distracted them, away from all of the different aspects of their life that that made them lose focus on the mission. Right? You lose focus on the mission, you're driving a Christmas tree through a car wash. There it is. Elijah's job was basically say, hey, listen... There's a God that we want to serve and worship. So Elijah's job, his mission was to bring the presence of God to the people of Israel. But now all of a sudden you find Elijah in a weakened state himself where he's basically saying, I'm running from my life. I'm running for my life. I'm running from everything that I once knew to be true. He's afraid. He's tired. He's discouraged. Things did not work out the way that he thought they were going to work out. He probably thought the punishment of three years of famine and fire from heaven and then rain on the tail end of the fire was going to spark a revival where the people of Israel were going to fall on their face and say, Oh, my God, look at the presence of God. And it didn't happen. And so now the angel of the Lord says to him, Elijah... If you're going to get refocused on your mission, number one, you got to get up and eat. He's not talking about food here, by the way. I mean, I mean, in the physical sense, there's food in the text. And so there is a part of that where Elijah probably just hadn't been eating very much. And so he needed some food. But I think in a deeper sense, the angel of the Lord is giving Elijah instruction that's applicable to your life and my life today. He's saying to Elijah, the same thing that he's saying to us tonight. You've got to get up and eat more and consume more of the presence of God in your life you got to get yourself back into the presence of God. you got to get yourself back into the Word of God. We can talk about encounter weekends. We can talk about God doing something great in our life. We can talk about reaching people for Christ. But it all stems from you and I being laser focused on the mission, the mission of I need to eat more. I need to consume more. I need to be in God's presence more. I don't know if you realize this or not. Do, do, do you know that there are some people, people sitting right beside you, people sitting right in the same row, people sitting in front of you that insist on eating food at least three times a day. Did you know that? Can you believe it, Tony? Can you believe Three times a day. Isn't that crazy? Three times a day. Some of you in the room are like, three? Mine's like five, like five times, five meals a day. I'm kind of a five meals a day person. I mean, it's amazing when it comes to actually our physical food. We got no problem with saying, no, i gotta, I got three times, I got three square meals. I got to have breakfast, lunch. I got to have a snack in between. Then I have to have a post-lunch snack, and then a pre-dinner snack, and then a dinner, and then a post-dinner snack, and then a post-post-dinner snack, and then a, and then a, and then a midnight snack. And then if I wake up at three in the morning, I might need something to fall back asleep again. Right? This is how we eat. It's amazing because you and I are highly committed to consuming food on a regular basis, but unfortunately, most of us as believers are completely content with one or two stale spiritual snacks a week. I'm good with one or two scriptures. I'm good with one or two songs a week. I'm good with just coming to church on a Sunday morning. I'm good with that. I don't need any more than that. I don't need any more than that. Think about it for a second, because this is what we do. Because Elijah is in a weakened state simply because, in my interpretation, he's lost sight of his mission and his goal of constantly being in the presence of God and bringing others into the presence of God. And so he finds himself in a weakened state, in a depressed state, in a place where he finally sits down in his depression, despair, and anxiety and says, I'm done. Why? Somehow, someway, he got himself outside of the presence of God. And it's the same reason why you and I struggle with the same feelings and the same emotions. It's the same reason why you and I look at our job we look at our family, we look at our finances or look at our situation. We say, you know what? I've had enough. I'm done. Because you, you got to eat more. You know, my, every once in a while, my wife goes away. Like this this week, she's going to go away. She'll she'll be away Thursday through Sunday, and you know what that means? That means I got to figure out what to eat for like three days. I'm, I'm like, it's tough. The burden is real, bro. You come to my house and bring some food with you. Like I don't like. Like and and so like but you know like she's a good wife and so she'll she'll do her best to prepare some stuff or to leave some leftovers or whatever and then and then she'll come home and she'll she'll be like what you what did you eat she'll be standing in the fridge she'll be like what did you eat because everything that she had prepared for me is already left in the fridge and it's still there three days later and and she's like what did you eat I'm like oh I just you know I don't know and she's like well why didn't you eat what I prepared I don't know she's like what did you eat I I, I just found like a old stale bag of beef jerky and I've been working on that all week and like I don't. But see, here's the point. The point is, I'm so lazy because I'm so used to someone else preparing the hot, fresh, well-cooked meal that it's too much work for me to get up off the couch, pause Netflix, walk over to the fridge, put it in the microwave, press some buttons, and then take it back and eat. That's too hard. My wife's like, what is wrong with you? Like you know, like we order. But see, see, we all do this when it comes to our spiritual diet. Though I'm, I'm too busy. It's too much. It's too hard. You know how many hours I work today? It's too difficult. I can't do it. I can't. And, and, and here's, here's the reality in the same way that I have no excuses. Cause my wife left everything prepared for me is the exact same thing that's happened in your life spiritually right now, because you got every podcast that you could ever want because you got the word of God on every single device that you could ever want because you got every worship song for free on Spotify that you could ever listen to. But somehow some way the church of the day has decided it's too hard to get myself into the presence of God. How is that possible? How have we come so far? How do how do we have so much prepared and served up? I mean, you could walk right out there, and there's about ten different sermons from Pastor Tony on CD that you could walk out of the room with tonight. Yet we have the nerve to walk around and drive around our cars and end our day and start our day and say, I don't have the time, it's too much work, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And it's sitting right there. We got no excuses. We got Bible in every single translation. We got we've got we've got everything we ever needed yet. We walk around like Elijah's doing and we're like, I'm done. We're like Eeyore. I'm done. Oh, it was me. Oh, it was so hard. So difficult. The angel said to Elijah, you gotta get up and eat. You know, you know what you you know what you need to do when you go home today? You need to eat some more. You know what you need to do around the altars in a couple minutes whenever the band comes back up and starts playing? You need to eat some more. You know, you know what you need to do the next time there's an encounter weekend? You need to be here. You need to eat some more. You know what you need to do tomorrow morning? You need to wake up and do what? Eat some more. Look at your neighbor and say, you got to eat more. You got to eat more. I Listen, if you get one thing out of this message, walk out, walk out of the room tonight with making a commitment to yourself that this week or just tomorrow, take it one day at a time if you have to, but this week I'm going to read a little bit more of God's word. I'm going to worship a little bit longer than what I normally do. I'm going to listen to some sermons or or feed myself a little bit more than what I normally do. This is where Elijah went wrong. He puts himself in a weakened state because he's not taking advantage of what God had been providing for him in the form of sustenance and food. The same that you and I do. We put ourselves in weakened states emotionally simply because we don't get ourselves into God's presence. Back to the text here, right? We get to verse number nine. It says this. He says he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Great question. What are you doing here? He replied, I've been so zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's, he's going to make his case here. He's like a lawyer in a courtroom. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I, you, you and I have had this same exact conversation with God. I'm the only one in my family who's trying to serve God. I'm the only one at my workplace who's who actually even cares. I'm the only one in my entire family, the only person in my entire generation that's trying to pass their faith on to the next generation. I'm the only one doing it. I'm the only student in my school who really cares about Jesus. Even in my Christian school, even in my home school, I'm the only one who cares, right? I'm the only one. This is a conversation Elijah's having with God, the same one that you and I have. He's making his case and saying, I'm the only one. The Lord says to him in verse 11, go out and stand. On the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That's number two, go out and stand. Number one was get up and eat. Number two is go out and stand. This is an interesting phrase. This, When I was studying this, this phrase kind of jumped out at me, go out and stand. On the mountain of on the mountain in the presence of the presence. He's on Mount Horeb, right? No, not Mount Horeb. He's on Mount Carmel. Mount Horeb was where Moses stood. Mount, Mount Horeb was where Moses went up the mountain and God descended on the mountain and where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So, So it's interesting because we're in the Old Testament era of time right now. And so in the Old Testament era of time, God interacted with his people differently than what he does in, in the time in which you and I are living in now, which is considered New Testament time. So it's, it's interesting because when he says, go out and stand, here's what, here's what happened in my head. Just This is, this is kind of my, my, my preacher head right here. But what happened in my head was it, it took me back to an, a, an Old Testament passage that is about 800 years before this moment in history. And it's Exodus chapter 33. And, and what was happening was that Moses is leading the Israelites at this point. He's already climbed Mount Horeb. He's met with God. He's brought the Ten Commandments down. And, and not just the Ten Commandments, but God has given Moses pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of understanding and how the people of Israel, in, at this point in history, are going to interact with God. And so one of the things that Moses had to do was Moses had to create the tabernacle. Where he had to create tents. Tents that the people of Israel lived in, as well as tents that the presence of God would come and dwell in, so that Moses could talk with God. Now, here's what would happen. If you, if you want to flip there, you can. If not, just listen to me. I'll read it to you. In Exodus... Chapter 33, verse 7, it says this. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, and he called it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, th- here's the connection. This is this is why I jumped to this passage, because, because the Lord said to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Go out and stand. But then in, 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 in Exodus chapter 33, it says this. It says that whenever Moses went out to the people, the people would rise and stand. They would go out and stand at the entrances of their tents, and that just kind of caught me. I was like, "Oh, that's kind of weird," because God said to uh, He said to Elijah, "Go out and stand." And, and I don't maybe maybe that was like a trigger phrase for Elijah. He's like, "Oh, I remember this," because Elijah would have read this. He would have read. He would have had access to the law that was already written at this point, and he would have known the story about what Moses did. Moses would go into the tent. All the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, and they watched Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, which represented the presence of God, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now think about this for a second. The people of Israel did not have any direct access to the presence of God. It was only Moses who had access to the presence of God. And so when Moses would walk towards the the tent, we'll just say that this tent here is the tent of meeting that Moses had set up. When Moses had walked towards the tent, all the people would be like, Oh, Moses is going to go talk with God. And, and word would spread through the camp very quickly. Hey, 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 Moses, Moses, Moses going to, going to the tent. He's going to the tent. He's going to talk with God. He's going to talk. He says, Everyone's whispering. And so everyone would jump out of their tent, and they'd stand at the entrance of their tent, and, and they and they would look towards the tent of meeting, and then they would see Moses go into the tent, and they would all stand there. And they'd just stand there. They'd just wait. They'd see the pillar come down, the pillar of cloud. It was representative of the presence of God. they just stand there, and they'd just wait. Out of reverence for what? For, for the presence of God? Because they're like, the presence of God is in that tent. Now, th- think about this for a second. Think about this for a second, okay? Let's just say that that's the way that it was today, right? Let's just say that the, that, that Pastor Tony is going to go into the tent. And when Pastor Tony goes into the tent, he's going to meet with God. And God's going to talk to him as a friend, face to face. And you and I are just going to stand here, and we're just going to wait. We're be like, whoa, Pastor Tony, he's, he's talking with God right now. Can you believe it? I mean, he's talking with God, Yahweh. He's having a face-to-face conversation with God. Think about that. Think about that. Think about if that's how it really was for you and I today. The people of Israel were so amazed. They were so in, in awe. They were awestruck by the by the presence of God. It was interesting. Pastor and I were talking about this last night. We were talking about this this illustration I was going to use, and I was talking about that word, awe. That that sense of just being completely awestruck by the the presence of God. And he said something to me that was really interesting. I never thought about it this way. But he he talked about how the definition of awe has changed so much, because because you know in early days, like especially in this context here in Exodus, people that people stood in in awe. They were silent. They they were speechless. They were just like. Shh. now, now all is something different. See now, like, you know, like when, when, when Tony and I travel and and you're just like, Hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a preacher. Oh, that's nice. How sweet. Oh, what a nice career choice. That's so nice. Or, or when you tell your friend, I'm going to go to church tonight on a Sunday night, I'm going to miss the game and I'm going to church. Your friends are like, Oh, what's wrong with you? Right? Right. See, we, we completely rephrase it now, you know. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, some, some of you are like, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah you know. Like, like I'm trying to witness to my friend and invite them to come to church. And they're kind of like, oh, oh, church. It's just so different. Because in, in this context, the presence of God had so much value in their life. that when God said to Elijah, go out and stand because the presence of God is about to go by, he's like, oh. And when, when when Moses walked into the tent of meeting, the people of Israel were like, "Oh, he's with the presence of God." How, why is it that we have come so far to where now you and I would rather stand at the base of the mountain and watch a man go into the presence of God rather than go into the presence of God ourselves? Why? Why? You know. You know. There's some of us in our churches today. We would be content to wait for Pastor Tony to come out of the tent. Take a selfie with him at the foot of the mountain and say, I know a man who got to meet with God, but I don't actually want to be the one to go into God's presence. That's too much work. That's too difficult. I'll go out and stand and I'll watch and I'll wonder what God's presence is really all about, but I don't want to go into the tent. You know, in the New Testament, they talk about tents too. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, Peter James, and John, takes him up the mountain, right? the Mount of Transfiguration, right? What happens on the Mount? Moses shows up, Elijah shows up. Most theology, most most theologians believe, including Martin Luther himself, that the reason why Moses and Elijah showed up on that mountain is the fact that Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And when the voice of God started to speak and commission Jesus, it was the voice of God through the presence of Moses and Elijah basically saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. How does Peter respond to this moment? Hey, guys, you want me to build some tents? See, Peter's stuck in that mode, right? He's stuck in that mode of God only dwells in a tabernacle or a tent or a temple. And it isn't until later, whenever the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where Paul says this, you and I are what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. See, I don't have to stand outside the tent and watch somebody go in and experience the presence of God and then come back and tell me about it. I can go in myself. In fact, it's even better than that. I don't even have to go into the tent because I am the tent. I am the vessel. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. God said, "I don't want to live in a, in a tabernacle or a tent any longer. I want to live inside of you and inside of me. I want to be the. I want you to be the vessel that holds my spirit and my presence. You want to talk about a mission in life? You've got the same mission that Elijah had." To take the presence of God to your family, and to your home, and to your schools, and to your workplace. My wife and I multiple times have walked around the property line of our home that we just purchased a year ago. And said, God, let this property be a place that's full of your presence. Not because God lives in my house, but because he lives in my soul. I don't got to stand outside the tent. I am the tent. And I'm not the tent because I deserve it or because I'm worthy, only because God said, I choose to live in you. So when God says to Elijah, go out and stand, he's teaching him something about the presence of God. It's almost prophetic in the sense, because what does the text say? It says, he says, go out and stand eh, on the mountain because the presence of the Lord is about to pass by. That's Old Testament theology. In Old Testament, the presence of God passed by in certain places. You had to go to a mountain or you had to go to a tabernacle or go to a temple or go into a tent in order to interact with the presence of God. But now all of a sudden, Elijah learning something. Almost in a prophetic sense, he's learning something that the presence of God is intera- going to interact with mankind in a different way. In the New Testament, I don't have to wait for the presence of God to pass by. The presence of God lives inside of me. Elijah goes out. And this is what happens. It says, A great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, tore it apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Okay, so let's summarize. We got, we got earth, wind, and fire, and Jesus is not in any of it. Okay, some of you got that. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then after the fire, there came a, a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. It was a sign of reverence for the presence of God. And he went out and he stood at the mountain of the cave. And then a voice said to him, and remember, it was, it was a whisper. So a voice said to him, Tom Hanks and lost or abandoned or whatever that name of that movie is where you're stuck on the island I don't even know anymore I'll figure it out later that's cool but the voice of God comes in a whisper and there's probably a lot of interpretations for why God chose to spoke in a whisper but the only one that I can wrap my head around is this You only whisper when you're so close to another person that you don't have to yell or shout or even talk in a normal voice. This is almost God's way of saying to Elijah in a prophetic sense, the way I interact with people is going to change. I'm going to be so close that I can whisper. I'm going to be so close to you in the midst of your cave, in the midst of your dark place that I can just whisper. If you come and you stand, if you get up and eat and consume God's word and you go out and you stand in the presence of God and realize that when you stand, God's presence is living in you, all I have to do is whisper. All I, you know, when you, when you go into a cave and you go into a dark place, you kind of lose cell phone reception, right? Right? Some of you live in the middle of Pennsylvania. So some of you are just like, oh, I know all about losing cell phone reception, right? And so, so sometimes, see, listen, sometimes when you go into your cave and you go into your dark place or when you spend too much time in the valley, like we talked about this morning, it's real dark, it's real lonely, and you feel like you've lost your connection or your receptivity with God. And God simply says to you and reminds you in the same way that he reminded Elijah, I'm right here. I'm so close to you. All I have to do is whisper. You know, you know, there's some of you that the devil's freaking out right now because you decided to come to church on a Sunday night. And he's like, what the heck are you doing? Because he wanted to keep you in that cave. Because he wanted to keep you in that dark place. See, because when you're in the dark place and you're in the cave, it's easy for the devil to scare you. Right? I said it this morning. It's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear a sound and you're like, oh, my God, someone's in the house. And you're like, no, it's just my dog. He rolled over. That's all that happened. Right? But, see, the devil plays games on you. Like, Like, if you're sitting around a campfire at night and you tell ghost stories, that works. People get scared. But when all the lights are on, you can't scare me with a stupid story because there's light. And see, the devil's freaking out right now because he's saying, oh, my goodness, I wanted you to stay in the cave. I wanted you to stay home. I wanted you to stay out of the place where you could get more of the presence of God in your life. I wanted you to stay in the dark place rather than step into the light and go out and stand and put yourself in a place where you could actually have a deeper encounter with God. You got to get out of that cave. Dan, why don't you go ahead and come? We're going to wrap it up and we're going to spend some time in the presence of God. How do you do it? How do you stay focused on the mission? How do you not drive your Christmas tree through a car wash? You get up and eat. And you go out and stand. And let's read the rest of the passage here. We'll get to number three here real quick. It says that he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord. It's the same speech again. I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death by the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. He's having the exact same conversation with God. You and I do this all the time. I just tell God the same thing. He's like, I got it. I got it the first time. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, the king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. You all y'all remember Nimshi, right? Everyone knows who Nimshi is? He was, the, he was the ancient Hebrew cousin of Yoshi from the Mario brothers. Okay. I'm sorry. Just... Anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat. Okay, that's just funny. Aren't you glad your dad's name isn't Shaphat? Like just, like just if, if there's anything you're gonna be thankful for in life, just be glad that your dad was not like a like a Hebrew hip hop artist named Shaphat. All right, uh, you know what? you can go ahead and start playing. It'll help me be more spiritual right now. Okay. Anoint Elisha son of Shaphat. As a new prophet, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who who escaped the sword of Jehu. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, so so the angel says to Elijah, get up and eat, and then the voice of God says to Elijah, go out and stand, and then we paraphrase all this instruction, because God's just giving him a whole list. Just go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this. this. Okay, let's, let's paraphrase. Get back to work. Get back to work. I'm giving you I'm giving you the food and the spiritual sustenance that you need. I'm telling you to get out of the cave and go stand and put yourself in a place where the presence of God can be greater in your life. And then I need you to get back to work. I need you to get back to the mission at hand. For Elijah, you could make the case that for Elijah, he had the same mission of, of spreading the presence of God that my wife and I talk about when we talk about lead the generation because Elijah's talking about passing his faith or leadership on to the next generation of leaders. The next prophet, the next king of Israel. He's saying get... Back to work, and I'm just to tell you, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what age you are in the room. It doesn't matter to me whether you're a high school student, a junior high student, elementary student. It doesn't matter to me you're a young adult, you're single, you're married, you have kids that you're raising, you're older and your kids are out of the home. It doesn't matter to me whether you work in ministry here at the church or whether you work somewhere else, you have another job. Whether you're self-employed, whether you're the manager of a bank or the or the or the vice president or the CEO of a huge company, you've got a job. And your job is to spread the presence of God wherever you go, just like Elijah's job was. And for some of you, the mission for you tonight is to be reminded, get yourself up and eat some more of God's word. And go out and get yourself out of the cave, out of the fear, out of the darkness, out of the loneliness, and get yourself into the presence of God. And then go get yourself back to work. Hey, mom, you got a generation of kids to raise. Hey, dad, you got some sons that need to see a godly man in their home. Hey, young person, you've got a generation of students that you need to reach in your school. Get back to work. See, the only way you can do the work that Elijah was called to do and that you're called to do is if you do the first things, the first two things. You get up and eat, and you go out and stand. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stop preaching. I've, I've gone probably way too long already. And now's an opportunity as the band begins to lead us in worship for you and I to get ourselves into the presence of God. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. This is going to be a very simple, very quick altar call. Many of you will respond. Some of you might feel a little uncomfortable, but this is your challenge to get out of the cave of your comfort and to get yourself into the presence of God. It would have been easier for Elijah to hang out in the cave. I understand that. For some of you, it's it's so much easier to not engage in worship. It's so much easier to not read your Bible. It's so much You love comfort. Comfort is your drug of choice as an American Christian. You want comfort. It's what, it's what holds most people back from growth in their relationship with God. They crave comfort more than they crave anything else. We want comfort. We want fame overnight. We want 30 pounds off in 30 days. We want it easy. You know, I'll take a cheat sheet rather than study God. I'd rather have welfare than a job. We want comfort in America. We want a comfort in the American church. We want destiny on a discount. That's what we want. We want God's promises fulfilled in our life without having to go through the processes that God wants us to go through. We want comfort. You're comfortable in your cave right now, but your cave is a dark place that shields you from the presence of God that wants to get you back on course and back on mission. So you're here in the room today, and the response is very simple. You say, Pastor Aaron, I need more of the presence of God in my life. On the count of three, I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to come around the front here. Some of you are going to fall on your knees and you're just going to begin to pray and be in the presence of God. Some of you are going to stay standing and you're going to worship along with the band. Some of you are going to have friends that pray with you. I'm going to pray with some of you. Pastor Tony's going to pray with some of you. We're going to pray for overwhelming amounts of the presence of God in your life. We're going to pray that you have an encounter with the Spirit of God in your life. Some of you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit tonight. Some of you will encounter the presence of God in such a way that it will bring healing to your soul, healing to your emotions, healing to some, f- some uh, form of physical infirmity in your body but you're going to have an encounter with God tonight and you're going to be the one who determines whether you have it or not based on whether you're willing to get up and eat and go out and stand and then go walk out of here and get yourself back to work. Jesus, I pray for every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this room. God, I pray that you would overwhelm us with a desire for the presence of God. Jesus, I pray that we would no longer be content to watch another man or another woman walk in their anointing and walk in and out of the tent where they're meeting from God and have the presence of God living inside of them. But God, we would be desirous and even jealous and envious of having a greater encounter with God ourselves. Jesus, in your name, I pray that a spirit of your presence would fall and descend in this place and in this room, God. Not because you're going to live in this room or in this building, but because, God, you want us to carry the presence out this door. You want us to be a vessel, a temple of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God, increase our faith. Help some of those that are hurting and lonely and living in dark places called caves. Help them now, even in this moment, to have the faith to step out and say, God, I need more of you. I'm stepping out into your presence like I've never done before. In your name I pray. Amen. And amen. You need more of the presence of God. You come on the count of three. One, two, three. Come on.